This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. And again, this is not just a land use housing sure. policy. It's a transportation policy. It's also a climate policy. It's also a social and racial equity policy. These things are all part of what this bill tries to do and could do long term. Channel 253 is supported by Microsoft. Microsoft is committed to civic conversations like those on Channel 253 that inform and empower Washington communities. To learn more, visit aka.ms slash Microsoft in Washington. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. This is Nate Bowling, host of the Nerd Farmer Podcast, brought to you by our friends at Libro FM. Housing is a deeply important issue, and it's one we've returned to and returned to repeatedly on this show. Recently, we had Will James on to talk about the bottom of the housing market in Tacoma and the Merkel Hotel on episode 150. On episode 117, we talked about we talked with Marguerite Martin about displacement and gentrifying markets. On episode 107, we talked about the housing market for millennial home buyers with Jasmine Jefferson from Windermere. And on episode 113, we talked about Tacoma Housing Now with Rebecca Parson. And that's in addition to multiple adult civics happy hour events around housing. Housing is an issue the show returns to repeatedly because it's so important. My guest today is Joe Tavor. He helped draft the Growth Management Act for Washington State, and he chaired the State Growth Hearing Board and was a planning director for four cities. I want to know what four cities in a second. And also, he was a member of the American Planning Association. So, Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Uh, Joe, what four cities were you a planning director for? I first was planning director for the city of Kirkland for 10, okay. 10 years. Yeah. Then I was the planning director for the city of Covington for a year. Then I was the planning director for the city of Shoreline, Washington. These are all Washington state cities for sure. six years. And I was an interim planning director for the city of Bainbridge Island for four months. I would make a joke about Covington's and it's, it's planning, but like that's not here or there right now. We'll keep that for ourselves. Um, you have a fascinating thesis about the missing middle in housing. And I want to get to that in a bit. But I just wonder, as somebody who does this like and is an expert in this, when you lay out the structural problems with housing in our area, how do you lay it out and explain it to a layman? I guess the best way to start this discussion is to say, in our state, we have a state law, the Growth Management Act, that lays out in broad, in broad strokes where development ought to occur and where development ought not to occur. Development ought to occur and is legally only allowed to occur at urban densities within urban growth areas, which means within cities. There are 82 cities in Kings, Snohomish, and Pierce counties, the Central Puget Sound region. The areas that are outside of cities and are outside of the urban growth area are to be rural or agricultural land or forestry resource land. So most of the people and jobs and development is supposed to be occurring inside the urban growth area, most of which is inside cities. So we start there. Most of the housing that is built uh, historically has been within the urban growth area and within cities for the past 30 years since the growth management law was adopted. We also have the state providing population forecasts for every county in the state for the coming 30 years. 
and the growth at the state forecasts then must be accommodated by the zoning of the cities and the counties to say we have capacity for the coming 30 years. So in looking at the population of the four county region, today it's 4.3 million. The state forecasts that within the next 30 years, we're gonna add another one and a half million people. So where that's gonna be accommodated in what city, at what density, in what form is what local planning is focused on, including cities like Tacoma, Seattle, and all the other 80 cities in the region. That's so, okay. So. I the numbers there can be fuzzy. So you said that currently the King, Pierce, Nahomish, and Kitsap County area basically have a population of about 4.5 million people. And if we're going to add 1.5, we're heading towards 6 million in the same footprint, correct? Correct. And, and just to make the 1.5 million a little bit more uh, uh, knowable, the city of uh, sure. Bellevue today has 150,000 people as their population. So basically you're talking about 10 times the population of the city of Bellevue will be accommodated in this region over the next 30 years. One of the pieces of conversation that I've been having in my like friend group is about the amount of housing stock that is basically available in the Northwest. And on a past guest, we had a, uh, we had a friend of the show named Margaret Martin came on, the pot auntie, and she basically talks about how the millennium home buying generation is the largest birth generation in U.S. history. Mm-hmm. So I guess... What is your perspective on the amount of available housing in our region? And so like, so we, we know the amount of available housing right now is inadequate, but how inadequate is it for our present, uh, considering we're gonna be seeing another 1.5 million people show up over 30 years? There are a lot of uh, sources of data that have been assembled mm-hmm. in different counties and cities about the question you just asked, how short are we right now? Uh, the Housing Authority for Snohomish County, which I'm most familiar with since I'm in Edmonds, has uh, has generated some information that says, generally speaking, we should have about six months supply of housing to be purchased in this county. They estimate that as of today, we have about a six day supply. So we're way short of what, at least in this county, and this is typical of the four counties, I think, uh, the, the shortage of housing is very dramatic. Vacancy rates on on, uh, on housing is another good example of how short we are uh, in the state on housing. For example, uh, you generally like to have about a 5% vacancy rate available supply of housing for rental as an example. In some cities in, in, in the region and in the state, that's like less than a percent. Skagit County is a good example. Less than a half of a percent uh, vacancy rate is available in Skagit County, which says people trying to buy or rent are really hard pressed to find a place to buy or rent as of today. And it's only gonna be worse as we have more people coming here for various reasons, for, for jobs primarily, and looking for a place to either purchase or rent. And if they can't do it here in the four county region, one implication is they're gonna be driving here from somewhere else, some place farther afield. We've seen this in California with people trying to get the jobs in the Bay Area, commuting from the Valley, becoming what we call super commuters. Well, that has all kinds of negative consequences, not just time people are spending in their cars as opposed to with their families or at their workplace, as well as greenhouse gas emissions that come with uh, more vehicle miles traveled. It's, it's simple to ask this question, so I'm gonna ask it, but then follow up with it. The issue is that we don't have enough housing. Why, in particular in the Puget Sound, have we not built more housing stock? Like, what is the block that is preventing builders, communities, developers, whomever, from building more housing in the, in the area? Well, there are many reasons, uh, many things that contribute to the pace and, and the scale of housing that is constructed. 
depending on who you talk to, there are different culprits or different reasons for, for the shortage of housing that we have. Most of the people in the developing community, people who actually build the housing will say, uh, one of the big constraints has been local zoning that makes it difficult to, to site, to construct housing, whether you're talking single family housing or multifamily housing or middle housing, which again is kind of between the low density detached housing that most people think of when they talk about residential neighborhoods and the very high density housing, which is most of what's been built for the past 10 years in this region. Uh, the missing middle is basically the housing stock that's between those two extremes. And it's also missing in the sense that it has been a much smaller percentage of the total housing stock that's been built for the past 10 years. So we're going to do this a couple of times because like my, my brain just works this way. So you're talking about like the low end housing stock, the high end housing stock and the missing middle. Can you define specifically what the missing middle is and how much middle we're missing at this point? And then like how much middle needs to be built over the next 30 years in order to meet the projections you're seeing? Okay, the, the, the description of the missing middle is really talking about the form of housing that occurs. And it's in the middle between two things that people commonly think of when they think about housing. At, at the, the low end, in terms of density, is mm -hmm. the typical detached housing neighborhood which is well over half of the total land area of cities in this four county region. So when you look at a land use map, let's say for the city of Seattle, I, I'm not familiar with the land the use Tacoma, density, yeah, let's go, okay. You look at the city map and, that talks about, well, how can land be used? What's it zoned mm -hmm. for? How can it be, can be developed in the coming, uh, coming years? In the city of Seattle, that's about 75% land mass of the city of Seattle. In some other cities like Sammamish as an example, it's a much higher number much more single family detached designated land. The multifamily that most people think of is thought of typically as mid-rise, high-rise apartments, you know, three, five, 10, even higher stories. And over the last 10 years, what's been built in the region uh, and then in the, the realm of attached or let's say multifamily housing uh, has been very expensive. So the very expensive multifamily housing and the very expensive detached housing have been very difficult for most middle income people or even lower income people to purchase or, or rent. So the middle is basically duplex, triplex, fourplex housing that is generally low density and low scale, possibly two or three stories. So when you think of a fourplex or a triplex or a duplex, you're not typically thinking of a six or a 10 story building. You're thinking of sure. two stories, possibly three stories, depending upon uh, when it was built and where it was built. So that middle housing is only about 10%, I'm sorry, 15 or 20% of what has been built over the past uh, 10 years. Most of what's been built has been either detached housing, the typical single family neighborhood that takes up about 75% of the city of Seattle's landmass, or um, multifamily, much of which is much denser, let's say mm -hmm. 75, 80, or 100 units to the acre or higher. When people talk about things like uh, the station areas along the link light rail that's being designated and built right now, the light rail system that's being built, the station areas where those uh, uh, stops are going to occur are going to be very tall buildings, very dense buildings, maybe 15, 20 stories, some of them. If you look at what's being built in Linwood, or what could be built at, uh, let's say, in Roosevelt in Seattle or Northgate at some point, mm -hmm. that's high density, high rise, fairly expensive stuff. So the missing middle is missing because it's not being built because typically where it locates would be in low density zones, but most of those low density zones 
uh, prohibit attached wall housing, whether it's duplex, triplex, or fourplex, or townhouse. So essentially the the thesis you're laying out is is that we're really good at building condos and uh, mixed-use buildings like going up in Proctor and Tacoma, Point Ruston. We're really good at being, building large single-family homes on large plots of land like the home that I live in and the home that most of the listeners probably live in. But we're failing to deliver for uh, middle-income families and failing to deliver that thing in the middle, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, fiveplex, whatever you call that. You mentioned that many of the municipalities prohibit these. What is the rationale that they give for prohibiting these kind of uh, developments? I think what many local governments are responding to is the perception that people who live in many of these neighborhoods have is that mm. these need to be, I would use the word homogenous, basically, in terms of form, all detached, fairly homogenous in terms of lot size. And again, there's variations here. Uh, lot sizes for detached housing runs anywhere from three or 4,000 square feet. For example, around Green Lake, a place where I used to live at one time, uh, lot size there could be as small as 4,000 square feet. Most single family zoning is around 7,000, 8,000, 9,000 square feet of lot area per, per unit. I think there's the perception that people have so that that is what you need to have a viable, livable neighborhood. Um, the problem has, has emerged is that to, to touch those houses in terms of, let's say, purchase price, those things are north of uh, half a million or a million dollars, depending upon where you are. And most people are not in a position to do that. I note that oftentimes when we talk about policies and local governments prohibiting things, there is a unstated racial aspect to this. And so I wonder, is there a unstated racial aspect to municipalities prohibiting the construction of these multiple family dwellings on a single family lot? Well, the history of zoning in this country goes back to the early part of the last century. And the rationale for zoning that was first explored was to separate unlike and incompatible uses. The key United States Supreme Court decision that kind of laid this all out back in the 20s was a case out of Euclid, Ohio, where the township of Euclid was saying, look, we don't want to have industrial uses right next to residential uses. There are noxious fumes. There are heavy equipment. There's a lot of reasons why you don't want to have those uses next to each other. So the notion of zoning really emerged in the 20s, and Euclid, Ohio, was the first zoning code that separated those uses. Went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said that is legitimate use of local government police power to separate uses to prevent incompatible and unhealthy uh, kinds of outcomes. Well, since then, many cities have adopted that kind of separation of uses to separate obnoxious or incompatible uses from one another. Over time, in the, the first half of the last century, residential uses in many neighborhoods in this country were not exclusively detached housing. They had a mix of detached and attached. By attached, I mean duplex, triplex, fourplex, and in lots of places around uh, the state where you can find neighborhoods that have a mix of detached housing and attached housing. I think I sent you a, uh, a PDF of a, a mm -hmm. neighborhood in Bothell um, that's an, a historic Bothell neighborhood that has a mix of detached and attached, has a duplex, and some new stuff that's been built. It's like fourplex, fiveplex, sixplex row, uh, row houses that are generally speaking two stories, maybe three stories. 
but not incompatible in terms of scale. And depending on the design details, it can also be more compatible even with the character of what's been there in the way of detached housing. My, my wonder is about to what extent is the prohibition of these uh, of these duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, fiveplexes in municipalities, is there a racialized history to that? Because whenever we talk about housing, race is hiding somewhere in there if we're talking about American housing. This is a very sensitive subject when you talk to local government officials or even people who live in detached housing. Many of them will be very offended at the notion that the zoning that they enjoy and the zoning that they support is racist because people frequently think, well, you're accusing me of being a racist. And that's very offensive to a lot of people. Um, At the same time, we had, a, a, I think, a study that was cited in an op-ed I wrote a week or so ago from the Brookings Institution, where it was a housing economist who made the point, and pretty plainly, that may not be the intent of the way you're separating uh, uh, types of housing, detached from attached. But the outcome is that it doesn't just separate people based on, um, on ability to pay or for rent or purchase. It has the effect of being having a, a racially disparate outcome. Now, the legislature last year, when they adopted some legislation dealing with housing, this is House Bill 1220, said, local governments, we need you to look at how to, how to enable greater choice in these neighborhoods, how to allow, they specifically named duplex, triplex, townhouse. They also said, you need to look at how you can identify components of your local codes, plans, and regulations that have an exclusionary effect. Mm-hmm. So they specifically named racial uh, equity as an issue is something that local governments need to address. So I think right there, the legislature was acknowledging, yeah, there's some um, racially inequitable, unfair outcomes that have been in practice for decades in in this state, not just in this state, in the whole country. The exclusionary nature and the racial exclusion uh, effectiveness of detached housing, I think, has become more pronounced especially as this form of housing, detached housing, has become much more expensive. And it's a pretty well-established uh, fact that communities of color are less able to pay uh, the cost of, of what housing has become uh, in most urban areas in the country. So it may not be an intent or point, uh, the economist at the Brookings Institution, that may not be what you're after, but that's, that's the outcome. And that's something I think our legislature has said, we need to pay attention to, we need to do something about and increasing the ability for people to have a housing choice like middle housing is, is a way to respond to that. So not everybody can pay a million dollars for a house in Kirkland or Mill Creek or some other community. But when you look at the, the relative cost of housing for detached versus attached, in some of this data I'm familiar with from Snohomish County, um, attached housing is gonna be less expensive from the get-go because you're using the land more efficiently, you're sharing the cost of that real estate with a greater number of units than if it's just a house on a lot. So you mentioned that neighborhood in Bothell who has this kind of middle housing. What are some other municipalities in the region that allow this kind of type of housing and have it in large numbers? Because it's funny for me because the, the the block that I grew up on, 19th and M Street in, in Tacoma, basically had like five duplexes on it just as a matter of coincidence. And so I've always seen duplexes as being kind of the norm. And like further down the block, there was a couple of converted places that like used to be like the neighborhood grocery store that was turned into multifamily housing, like a fiveplex. And so like in Tacoma's hilltop, at least, like this is the norm, but it's not the norm in other parts of the city and other municipalities. So like besides that area in Bothell, who else in the region is actually doing this already? Well, I, 
I'm familiar with Kirkland. I was planning director there for a while. They have recently adopted middle housing regulations in Kirkland to facilitate more middle housing. So some cities have stepped up. Kirkland's a good example. Uh, Olympia, Washington, likewise, uh, even Wenatchee in Eastern Washington has adopted, recently adopted middle housing regulations because they see the same kind of need, even although they have a different market in some ways, uh, they have a shortage of housing there. It's a statewide issue. So most cities that have been around for a while uh, have some of this already, depending upon uh, you know where you look. Another thing that's kind of interesting about this is that some people will drive by a building for years and not know that it's a duplex yeah. or a triplex. It's many of these things have been designed to look like single family houses, either deliberately or sort of coincidentally. And typically that means, does it have a pitched roof of some kind? Um, does it have a yard? Does it have other things that people just at first blush when they look at it, think, oh, that must be a, a single family house. And in fact, in many cases, it's not. And, you know, I don't know if the duplexes you're talking about in Tacoma are apparent that they are duplexes, they have a common wall. But in many places, uh, that's not the case. It's not that apparent. I think if any city's been around for more than 50 years, it's got this mix of detached and attached somewhere in the city. So then the opposite question is, uh, what are some municipalities that are going to be drag kicking and screaming likely by the legislature into allowing this middle housing? Well, um, statewide, there's an association of Washington cities, AWC, which mm. has a, a presence lobbying on behalf of all cities. In Olympia, they've already gone on record as opposing House Bill 1782. And a large part of their argument has been, do not preempt us. We are local governments. You know, we have we are closest to the people in situations that are different from place to place. Legislature, you should not be imposing a state top-down kind of solution on this on this issue. Uh, they also make the case that this is um, one size fits all. You know, the situation in one city might not be the same as the situation in the city right next door. So therefore, you need to have the flexibility for those different cities to, to regulate land use differently. So those are some of the concerns that we've heard about uh, so far from the Association of Cities. Uh, I'm a former city planner. I spent 20 years working for cities. I understand sure. that what cities do and the services they provide and the decisions they make are best made by cities. There are many things that are different from city to city. Uh, so I think that local deference and local discretion has been a part of the Growth Management Act for the last 30 years, and I think it's appropriate. But there's some issues that really are broader in scope than, let's say, within the city limits of a given city. A housing market, example, is, is, is a regional market. Uh, an employment market is broader than an individual city. People who live in one city typically or often work in another city. The same thing goes for transportation. So that's why it's really... Uh, appropriate to look at this as more than a city by city kind of phenomenon. Uh, as I mentioned, Kirkland has uh, middle housing regulations. Uh, uh, Everett is looking at this. A number of other cities are looking at this without the state telling them they have to look at this because they're seeing it as one potential way to deal with this issue. Part of the problem though, is that there are 82 cities in this four county region and if mm. five or six or seven of them step up and do something like this without the state telling them they must do this, that means they're taking the weight for the entire region for trying to, to meet that part of the market. And there's an equity issue there. There's also a question of, well, how effective is that going to be if, if only four or five out of 82 cities are really stepping up? And here's where I think I've got a number that I, you might have seen. I might have related this already. 
when you look at the, the coming 30 years, Tacoma and all the other cities and the counties, the four counties are having to update their comprehensive plans, including the land use piece, the housing piece for the year 2050. So the, the governor's office asked the Puget Sound Regional Council to, to use their data sets, use their geographic information system to come up with an estimate of how much middle housing could be built using the criteria that are in 1782 in the coming 30 years. So if this law were to become the case and cities and counties were to step up and do what the law directs them to do and actually implement it, in the coming 30 years, the estimate is that we could add between 40 and 100,000 units of middle housing. So that's not the complete answer to how are we gonna meet the housing supply sure. that we have, but it's part of the answer. So we'll take a break here. And when we come back, um, I want you to unpack uh, House Bill 1782, which is being considered actually this week as we're recording. And then also, um, I'm going to ask you to wonk out with me a bit about housing and what's happening in various quintiles of income in the country and in the region. So we'll be back. And we are back. I want to thank you for downloading the show today. The Nerd Farmer Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro is my audiobook seller of choice. They allow me to enjoy audiobooks without the hassle of Amazon's Audible. If you join Libro FM today using promo code Tacoma, your first month you get two books for the price of one, and then ongoing books will give you one credit for $14.99 a month. I am currently listening to a couple of books. The first one I'm listening to is Children of Doom. This is the third book in the Dune, whatever you call a seven book sequence. I'm not sure I'll make it past this one. Uh, it's weird, honestly. There's a lot of spice, there's spice orgies and the talking baby from book two is now like even more important. It's very strange, but like it's a journey, right? And uh, Frank Herbert's Lincoln, Lincoln kid. So like, you know, I'm committed to it, but like, I think I'm done after this. Uh, the other book I'm listening to is called The Ball is Round. I'm actually going back and forth listening and reading it. Uh, it's a thousand plus page tome about the history of football and its origins. Uh, sorry, round football soccer. Uh, and it's also a 38 hour audio book, but it's just a fascinating text. Like I really appreciate hearing about the origins of football versus the origins of rugby versus the origins of Aussie rules football and like how they grew up. It's basically house rules. Like think about Uno, like do you stack draw fours? Hell yeah. Anyway, if either of those interest you, check them out on Libro FM. Uh, and again, you can join Libro FM using promo code Tacoma and get two books for the price of one. Uh, in addition, this show is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. We're a group of podcasts. And what we're trying to do is give depth, perspectives, stories, points of view, uh, holding local officials accountable and doing it with a fresh touch that you're not going to get from other media. Um, I don't consider myself to be a journalist. I'm just a teacher. But like the conversations that we have are important and the conversations we have are worth supporting. And so I'm going to ask you to consider joining Channel 253 as a member. Membership is very reasonable. It is $4 a month or $40 a year. And your membership gives you access to our member-only Slack in which there's always a conversation happening. Uh, everybody right now is sharing their like books they plan on reading for 2022. And then in the travel section, there's all this uh, stuff going on about like plan for summer travel. Uh, and it also gives you access to member-only uh, podcast called Off the Record that Doug hosts every Friday. And that's where the conversations that are too spicy for Nerd Farmer and too spicy for IWL and like the real, real ish talk happens. And so channel253.com forward slash membership. It is $4 a month, $40 a year. Do it. Do it. Do it. All right. Uh, Joe, let's get back to it. Something that you said caught my ear because you were talking about the opposition that the cities have to 1782. And we'll talk about 1782 in a moment. But a passion or a hobby horse of mine that I'm on right now is that 
local governments have no real power except the power that is devolved to them by the state government. And so when local governments are saying that we should have local control over this, in the end, and, and you nailed it, like we're, we're talking about housing, we're talking about a housing market, job market, and transportation market where the choices that are made in Fircrest impact beyond Fircrest. The choices that are made in Woodenville impact beyond Woodenville and so on, and so on, and so on. And so I would make the argument back to those cities that like it is the duty of the state to act in this case for the betterment of the state because what we're doing right now isn't working. And so I, here's, here's, here's where I want to go. I want to go back to our conversation about resistance to middle housing. And I want to ask about renter-occupied versus owner-occupied. So something that I know from kind of some recent research is, is that everybody in Tacoma knows that rents are up. But in actuality, home prices have gone up faster than rents. And so like put differently, a house that uh, costs $400,000 in Tacoma rents for mm, what a house that costs $150,000 rents for in Houston. Like rents and rents are actually kind of reasonable in Puget Sound. Well, reasonable is the wrong. Well, hell yeah, actually, no, they are reasonable compared to housing prices. But anyway, here's where I'm going. I asked about the unstated presence of race in the conversation. I want to ask about the perception of renters versus owner occupiers. To what extent does that play a role in the resistance to middle housing? That's a really good, uh, interesting question, Nate. Um, one thing that, that has been striking me as I hear people talk about this issue, including comments you're just now making, is that most people are not uh, real estate experts. They're not planners. They're not you know, architects, or government officials. They, they're just people living their lives, doing whatever they do. So colloquially, when you talk to somebody about single family housing, that's been in the, that's been in the, the, the culture for decades in this country. And it's even, it, it appears in comprehensive plans. It even appears in the statute. I think it even appears in, in this legislation because the idea of a single family housing kind of carries with it the implication it's binary. Either you're a single family or you're not, mm -hmm. which is, if you step back and think about it, is, is really inaccurate. It's, it's really, uh, it's dated thinking. Um, Single family neighborhoods, again, kind of carries with it the implication that the people who live in these single family detached houses are families. Well, then what's everybody else? I mean, I mean, I live in a I live in a, a fourplex with three other families. Uh, whether we have children or grandchildren or not is is not the point. The point is we're a family. And people who live in attached housing are also families, whether there's one or two person household, or they have children or they don't, which some of them do. So I think that the the jargon terminology that we've used in the past kind of reflects, I think, a mindset that kind of leads to, well, gee, if we're in a detached neighborhood, we're probably, we probably are homeowners, mm. although that's not necessarily always the case. A lot of this is rental housing, right? And if you don't live in a single family house, you live in attached housing, which again, many people think of as, well, that's apartments. And when you say apartment, a lot of people in this culture think, oh, those are renters. So there's think as an inherent, and I've heard this at many hearings over the years sure. in the local government, People are concerned that we don't want to have renters because they're not invested in the community. They're not going to support the bond issues. They're going to be sort of living their lives apart from the life of the community, which, again, I think is sort of a biased way of looking at people who, who rent. Many times when I've been in a room talking to people who are concerned about these housing issues, the, the bias, frankly, there's a bias against renters, whether they're people of color or not. It's just those people 
are people we want to make sure are not too present and too numerous in our community. That's a concern. That's a that's a fear. That's a, I think a bias that that exists when you think about things in a binary way. Either you're a detached house with a family in it, probably a homeowner, or you're this renter who probably has no real interest or investment in the community and you're transitory, you're gonna be in there and out of there in some small amount of time. So I think that's not helping us. When you use terms like single family neighborhoods, I think that's not helpful. When you use terms like apartment, I think that somehow kind of also brings with it some baggage and some misperception about who are the people who live in attached housing. A lot of people who live in attached housing are homeowners, they're condominium owners. They live in a unit that might be a half million dollars or more, depending upon where it is. So I think we need to kind of do a reset and a paradigm shift in thinking about housing and people. We're not just talking about structures. We're talking about human beings and, and needs of families, some of whom have children, some of whom do not. So I guess that's kind of a roundabout way of saying we need to kind of rethink this in a bigger way, not just uh, the sanctity of a detached neighborhood that is only for families versus everyone else. I think we need to be more inclusive in what we think about what the needs are. We need to recognize that families come in different sizes and shapes and, and numbers and needs. And so I think that what the middle housing legislation tries to get at is recognizing that not everybody wants or needs to be in a detached housing or can afford to be in a detached house to meet their housing needs. It's interesting to hear you say what you said about apartments and that term coming a statement because of renters. Because you keep saying the term detached housing, and I know what that means, but like in my head, that has a stigma as well. Like it sounds like you're not, like it's housing that we're not connected to. And I know it's not what it means, but like even just the, the power of words there. I, here, I, I wonder, would a better framing for this be calling single family homes low density housing, calling condos and apartments high density housing, and then calling these middle homes you're talking about like middle density housing? That's a really good point. In fact, the legislation that I mentioned that was passed last year, House Bill 1220, used the term moderate density to describe ah. duplex, triplex, townhouse. So when you talk about density, I think it, it's helpful in some cases to talk about density. So as I said earlier, most detached, meaning it doesn't have a common wall with another home. Yeah. Detached housing typically is on a lot that might be between 5,000 square feet, maybe eight or 9,000 square feet. Well, that's pretty low density in terms of the density scale. Apartments and condominiums that most people, again, commonly think of as multifamily, which again is curious because are there more, is there more than one family living in a unit? Well, probably sure, not. Yeah. <laughs> it shares a common wall. It could be a, a floor, it could be a ceiling, could be a wall. Um, those are typically higher densities, You know, let's say 40 units to the acre and up. So medium density, not defined clearly in the statute or really in anywhere else. But generally speaking, if you're if you're talking about a detached single family neighborhood, you're probably talking in the neighborhood of one to five or six units to the acre. If you're talking about multifamily, usually that's going to start up around 24 to the acre or, or up. So medium density, moderate density, most middle housing density, I think would be between those two extremes between let's say five or six units to the acre and let's say 15 or 20 units to the acre. The question that becomes, well, what's the form, which really is the focus of middle housing, not so much the density, it's the form. What does it look like? What's the character? Does it look like it is compatible with what is around it? And here's where then you get to, what's the shape of the building? Is there a roof? Lots of people connote a, a, a sloping roof 
with, well, that must be a, a home or house of some kind. It looks more familiar to a lot of people. Not to say that you can't have a, a house with a flat roof. There are a lot of those too, but at least in this mm -hmm. climate, that's just not a good choice. You want to have some kind of slope to it. And when people read that, they read that as visually as a character that is compatible with detached housing that they're familiar with and may feel, be more comfortable with. So that's why this legislation, I don't know if you're ready to jump into the bill itself. It talks about not just you must do this. It also says Department of Commerce, our state agency, you must come up with, with rules. You must come up with model templates to show people what could a duplex, a triplex, a fourplex, a townhouse look like? What kind of dimensions would it have to have? What kind of height maxima should it have? So some people, when, they, when you say middle housing, they think, oh, those are the five and six story things I've seen. Well, no, those are not middle housing. Those are mixed use mid-rise, much higher densities. If you're talking two or three stories, which a lot of, uh, a lot of middle housing is, including the building I'm in right now, it's three stories. It's not out of scale with a lot of detached housing. Some of them are single family ramblers. You don't see a lot of single story ramblers anymore. What do you see instead are two, perhaps three story buildings. A lot of what gets built, I'm thinking about North Seattle, where I have a number of friends and spend some time. When a house gets to the end of its economic life, and they all do mm. eventually, when it gets to the end of its economic life, what gets scraped off is what was there before for three or four decades. What gets built, if it's not middle housing, is a large single family detached cube. And this has been really offensive to a lot of people because they think, well, wait a minute, that doesn't fit the character of our neighborhood. And here we are, a, a number of you know, woody walk-up, two and three story single family home. And now we've got this cube that's maxing out on the floor area and, and that can be built on that lot. It doesn't seem like it fits in. And But the key thing is, it's just the same number of households that can fit into that cube as what was in that rambler that was scraped off. But the difference is, it's a million dollar building as opposed to, let's say, a $300,000 or $400,000 cost of a duplex or triplex unit. So you've mentioned the legislation, House Bill 1782. Can you walk the audience through uh, more specifically what's in the legislation, why you support it, and then what they can do if they support it as well? Well, House Bill 1782 has been proposed by Representative Jessica Bateman from Olympia. Um, it has another bill that's in the Senate. It's Senate Bill 5670, I believe. It does the same thing. They're both being heard concurrently next Tuesday, one by the House Local Government Committee, one by the Senate Housing and Local Government Committee. It's the same legislation. What the bill attempts to do is to say to most cities of a certain size, actually it, it breaks it down to three tiers of, of, of size of city. Cities that are 10,000 population and below, cities between 10,000 and 20,000, and the cities above 20,000. So Tacoma would be in that last category. Um, sure. and it has a, a ascending orders of requirements for what they must do to accommodate middle housing. Um, up to six plexes would be required to be permitted on all residential lots within a half mile of transit in cities with a population of 20,000 or more. So a key component here is to say, we just don't want to put these middle housing units anywhere. We want to focus on where is their transit? Where is it possible for somebody to walk four or five blocks to a bus or to a light rail? or to a ferry, that's including the definition that is used to, by the regional council, um, must allow uh, up to six plexes. Now that doesn't say require, it's gonna be a six plex, doesn't mean we've made illegal 
detached housing. It simply says you must also permit someone to build up to a six-plex if you're within a mile of transit. Um, must also allow duplexes on any residential lot in the city with a population of at least 10,000. And there are other requirements in the bill as well to address concerns about displacement. The bill that was passed last session, 1220, already directs cities to come up with policies to deal with displacement of people who are living in housing that is now going to be unavailable for a period of time while it's being redeveloped into something else. Displacement is a concern. It's something that was talked about last session, I should say, a year or two ago in Oregon. The legislation that we're looking at here is largely modeled on what the state of Oregon has already done with middle housing. And in the state of Oregon, they also did was to say, State Department of Conservation and Land Development, which is their equivalent to our Department of Commerce, prepare rules, prepare model ordinances that cities then can look to, to comply with the state law. And that will get into the details of how big, how tall, how wide, uh, what form could be, could be done for a duplex, a triplex, or a townhouse. So this bill, 1782, does the same thing. It says, okay, here are, the, here are the requirements we're trying to get you all to. If you're a city of a different size, these are the requirements. And by the way, you must then look to the model ordinances that are developed by our Department of Commerce, still to come, that will then focus on all those details. How do we make sure that it fits the character and scale of neighborhoods? And those rules that'll be developed by that state department would have to go through a very extensive public process. So every city person, every county person, every private sector person would have a chance to take part in shaping what does that rule look like so we know what to expect. Predictability is a key thing. I think that drives a lot of anxiety and concern when people talk about what's gonna happen on my block or down the street from my house. Uh, and the fact that people frequently are fearful about change, that's human nature. But when you also say something's gonna happen and we can't show you what it looks like, that's even scarier. I mean, sure. here I am talking to somebody in a podcast, uh, radio in the 40s, uh, the, the scariest radio shows were in your mind's eye, you could hear there was something coming up the hall, but they couldn't show you what it looked like because it was radio, right? Well, in your mind's eye, each individual could conjure up the most scary, horrible thing coming down the hall. And I think when you talk about this subject, unless you can show people, here's what middle housing can look like, or if it's regulated by the state with a rule, must look like, or can't look any different than this, then I think you've made it clear for people to understand if you less, feel less concerned and fearful about what might this look like if it were to happen in my neighborhood. I think the exit question for this conversation is, most of the episodes that we've done about housing, and I think the most pressing issue about housing in Tacoma for my audience is the rise of homelessness and the plight of low-income families. Mm-hmm. We're talking about this middle housing thing, and you've, you've got me sold on it. Like, I, I'm, I'm team duplex for sure. Mm-hmm. My, my wonder, though, is, is and, I, and I've heard this described as like a trickle-up effect, uh, what will be the impact and benefit on low-income workers and low-wage earners in the Northwest? Like, how will this help alleviate the pressure on the bottom end of the housing market? Well, this is just one of a number of things that have to be done. This is not the gold, the silver bullet. This is part of an overall strategy that has to include many other things. Again, thinking about our friends down in Oregon, what what they did was to say, well, they didn't just do this. They also made a substantial investment of state and local dollars in building housing, in, in building transitional housing so that people who were displaced would have a place to go. You're even hearing, I think, local governments in this region 
to address the homelessness issue in many ways. One of the ways they're talking about is buying hotels and having people stay in, in, uh, in basically, in effect, public housing for either the interim or the longer term until some other kind of housing is available for them. As a practical matter, displacement is going to happen whether this bill is adopted or not. I mean, the market is already acknowledging when a building comes to the end of its economic life, even if it's affordable housing, affordable to people who are living there now, at some point, that building is going to be replaced by something else. And when that happens for that period of time, those people are going to be displaced. So I think we need to think about this more strategically and in, in, in more components than simply we're taking the building down, something else is going to be there. We need to think about what's going to happen to the people who were in that building, what's going to happen to their ability to have a place to live, uh, either for the interim or for the longer term. So there are a lot of other pieces to this that are part of a solution. And a big piece of this is going to have to be some kind of investment by some combination of the federal government, the state government, local governments to address displacement and the needs of people who will be displaced by the inevitable turnover of housing that right now is uh, affordable in the sense because it's it's old. Maybe it's not been as maintained as it, as it should have been or could be. So I think it's, we need to have a holistic, multi-faceted look at how do we deal with the needs and the dynamic of what's going to happen over time. If all that's happening is we're seeing in housing scraped off and replaced by very expensive housing on a one-for-one -one basis, Rambler goes away. Now we've got a 3,000 square foot cube that's going to cost a million dollars to purchase. We haven't really made any headway in terms of increasing either the number of units or the affordability of units. Yeah, that's spot on. Seriously, if we have 1.5 million people coming to the region, every time that we build new housing to replace old housing, it has to be more dense. Like that's, if you hear nothing else, dear listener, like that's a thing. Like we cannot replace single family homes with single family homes. Like we need to be building duplexes, triplexes. And Honestly, that's an opportunity for people with an entrepreneurial spirit. Like if you're young, build a duplex, live on one side, rent the other one too. Uh, Joe, thanks so much for making time for this conversation. If people want to reach out to you and pick your brain on things or connect with you, where can they look? Well, they can email me. My email address is joseph.w.tovar. Emphasis on the first syllable, tovar, at gmail. <laughs> It's it's been mangled in ninety ways, so don't worry about you know <laughs> about that. It's Joe Tovar, and that's my email address. I can give them information about that. They can also go to um, the website of their legislators. Um, you've got three legislators down there in Tacoma who are going to be looking at this and thinking about this. Uh, Lori Jenkins in the House, who's also the Speaker of the House. You've got uh, Jake Fay, who is chair of the Transportation Commission, a Transportation Committee in the House. And again, this is not just the land use housing sure. policy. It's a transportation policy. It's also a climate policy. It's also a social and racial equity policy. These things are all part of what this bill tries to do and could do long-term. And then uh, there's a state senator who's a new state senator down there whose name escapes me. I'm blanking out on her name. But um, this there's a bill in the Senate. I th other thing I'll say finally, by way of, well, who's supporting this bill? I mean, there are a number of people who think this is a good idea. But it's interesting to me that on the House bill, there are 29 co-sponsors. Well, that's 30% of the entire House of Representatives. Okay. So there's an awful lot of interest by people in the House right now in Olympia. It's also interesting to me that at least six or seven of those House members either now are or were city council members. So they understand local government. It's not like these are legislators in the state level who don't understand what it means to be a city council person and the kinds of challenges they have. 
Uh, they do. They understand that. And I think that's one of the reasons why they're co-sponsors is they see this is an issue where the state needs to play a role. And it's something that I think is a statewide issue. It's not just a, a Tacoma or Puget Sound issue. It's an issue everywhere in the state of Washington. You heard them, Farm Fam. This bill is being heard this week. So reach out to, our le- to your legislators. Hit up Senator Trudeau. Hit up uh, Speaker Jenkins. Hit up our representatives. And uh, tell them you support House Bill 1782. Again, Joe, thanks for coming on the show today. You're very welcome. Thank you. Wakanda forever, y'all. If you are able to get boosted, uh, prosecute and convict the police that killed Manuel Ellis and go Sounders. Channel 253 is supported by Microsoft. Microsoft is committed to civic conversations like those on Channel 253 that inform and empower Washington communities. To learn more, visit aka.ms slash Microsoft in Washington. This is Nate Bowling, host of the Nerd Farmer podcast, brought to you our... Take two. (laughs) Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 podcast network. Check out our other shows, Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Are Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.